So I'm going to uh, speak a little bit about bringing compassion to a world on fire, bringing the mind and heart together. So we've been spending the week together cultivating the mind-heart through Vipassana practice, building momentum, deepening our capacity with concentration. We've heard teachings on the four foundations and received instructions for working with the body, breath, thoughts and emotions, Vedana, and mindfulness of Dhammas. We have listened to teachings on mindfulness, the path to freedom, working with afflictive emotions, the five spiritual faculties, the four mind turnings, reflections on non-self, and the sure heart's release. We also have spent time in the afternoons in the practice of metta or loving-kindness and have worked with the benefactor, ourself, a friend, neutral person, and all beings. I would say it's been a full, full, and rich retreat, notwithstanding even all of nature that has joined us, including the temperature, (laughs) the deers, the turkeys, the lizards, and other beings, seen and unseen, all gathered to support us in our efforts. All of us here joining our intentions to establish and nurture our practices as we move forward toward freedom and sustained joy. So it's an opportunity now for me to, um, having had this wonderful container that we've been building, uh, dropping in a piece about compassion and activism. It's a perfect holding for that conversation, I think. So why have we come? Or as Bhante Gunaratana says, why even bother? So meditation, you know, in and of itself is called the great teacher. It is the cleansing crucible fire that works slowly but surely through understanding. The greater our understanding, the more flexible and tolerant, the more compassionate you can be. You feel love towards others because you understand them, and you understand others because you have understood yourself. You have looked deeply inside and seen self-illusion and your own human failings, seen your own humanity and learned to forgive and to love. When you have learned compassion for yourself, compassion for others, is automatic. A practice meditator who has achieved a profound understanding of life inevitably will relate to the world with a deep and uncritical love. Meditation is like cultivating a new land. To make a field out of forest, first you have to clear the trees and pull out the stumps. Then you till the soil and fertilize it, sow your seed, and harvest your crop. To cultivate your mind, first you clear out the various irritants that are in the way, pulling them out by the root so they won't grow back. Then you fertilize, 
You pump energy and discipline into the mental soil. Then you sow the seed and harvest the crops of faith, morality, mindfulness, and wisdom. And in using faith, using it here in terms of knowing that something is true because you have seen it work, because you observed it within you, which is one of the things that I love about this practice and this journey. Morality, a healthy habit pattern that you have consciously and intentionally chosen to cultivate because you recognize its superiority to present behaviors and habit patterns. A purpose of meditation is personal transformation. Meditation changes your character by a process of sensitization, by training you to be deeply aware of your own thoughts, words, and deeds. Arrogance evaporates and antagonism dries up. Mind becomes still and calm. Life smooths out. You become prepared to meet the ups and downs of existence. Tension, fear, and worry are reduced. Restlessness recedes and passion moderates. Life becomes a glide instead of a struggle. All this happening through understanding. Meditation sharpens your concentration and your thinking power. Piece by piece, your own subconscious motives and mechanics become clear to you. Intuition sharpens. The precision of your thoughts increases, and gradually you come to a direct knowledge of things as they really are, without prejudice and without illusion. Albert Einstein a human being is a part of a whole called by us universe, a part limited by and in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires into affectation and affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. So last night, um, I was trying to figure out, like, what was I going to call this talk? What was it going to be about? da 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 dee da 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 And um, someone sent me a uh, YouTube of a speech that was given at the Democratic um, uh, Convention last night. And there was this preacher who um, really bought it home, slammed it out of the park. And one of the things about his delivery and what he was saying, he's the, he's the first preacher that I've heard in public, um, spaces that really approximates Martin Luther King. Um, so I just took a few pieces from what he said that I'm going to read to you. Um, and although he's talking about politics and the state of America, I know there's a lot of you all here who aren't from this 
land. Um, just to, to catch the fire in which he's speaking in terms of uh, this invitation that I'm offering you to step in to really being present and aware outside of your own individual world and engaging with our world here that is on fire. So his name is Reverend Dr. William J. Barber. I am a preacher, a son of a preacher, a preacher immersed in the movement from five years old. I come to talk to you about faith and morality. I am a preacher, and I am a theologically conservative, liberal, evangelical biblicist. <laughs> I know it may sound strange, but I am a conservative because I work to conserve a divine tradition that teaches us to do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Working for a revival and calling for a moral revolution of values. In my heart, I am troubled and I am worried by the way faith is cynically used by some to serve hate, fear, racism, and greed. We need to move towards domestic tranquility. When religion is used to camouflage meanness, we know that we have a heart problem in America. There have always been forces that wanted to harden and even stop the heart of our democracy, but there has also always been people who stood together to stir what Sister Dorothy called a revolution of the heart and Dr. King called a radical revolution of values. Reviving the heart of our democracy the watchword of our democracy and the watchword of faith is we. Now, my friends, they tell me that when the heart is in danger, somebody has to call an emergency code and somebody with a good heart will bring a defibrillator to work on a bad heart because it is possible to shock a bad heart and revive the pulse. In this season, when some want to harden and stop the heart of our democracy, we are being called like our foremothers and fathers before us to be the moral defibrillators of our times. We must shock this nation with the power of love. We must shock this nation with the power of mercy. We must shock this nation and fight for justice for all. Quote from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. You know, I've had a lot of uh, reasons and opportunities to do a lot of self-evaluation in terms of compassion and forgiveness, given what's been going on in this country, particularly as it has related to um, the ancestry that I come from in this day and time. And um, the last uh, two gentlemen who um, were killed it was the first time in quite some time that I heard the news and this body went into gyration. And so I had to stop and take a look and determine for myself what it was for me that was going to engage me to take action of some kind. 
And then the more I thought about it, the more I came to realize that there's been a very intentional commitment for the last four years in terms of doing the teacher training to get trained to be able to speak to people in relationship to this practice, this philosophy, and what's available to us by actively engaging with it. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I know people don't all, I'm 60. <laughs> I just turned 60, so never said that in a big public forum before. <laughs> and it's going to be on Dharma Sea, too. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but at 60, I don't have the kind of um, bandwidth and energy to be an activist the way I did when I was in my 20s and 30s. But it occurs to me that everything that rolls out from the way I live my life and the people that I engage with and the communities and organizations that I am connected to are all a driving force towards um, bringing freedom to all beings. That's what I'm inviting you to take a look at. How will it look for you? Would you consider using the embodied self in the service of others? Would you consider that it's time to step in, even at whatever current skill level you're at? This practice is giving and restoring. Compassion is the armor that serves us to keep us well on this life walk in these gendered bodies with our ethnicities and cultures and classes. This compassion practice is an incremental practice. Can we spend some time cultivating compassion as we do cultivating dislikes, judgments, greed, anger, and ignorance? Each of us in our own way can try to spread compassion into people's hearts. Western civilizations these days place great importance on filling the human brain, knowledge, but no one seems to care about filling the human heart with compassion, the Dalai Lama. Deep listening is the foundation for right speech. If we cannot listen mindfully, we cannot practice right speech. We must look and listen with the eyes, ears, and heart of compassion. Compassionate listening brings about healing. When we are not listened to or heard, we are not understood. When we are not understood, we come like a bomb ready to explode. Bodhisattva Kuan Yin is the one who listens to the cries of the world. She has the quality of deeply listening without judging or reacting, and she has a great capacity of listening with compassion and true presence. When we listen and understand with our whole being, we can diffuse a lot of bombs. Thich Nhat Hanh. So compassion, or karuna, as it's um, termed in Sanskrit and Pali, or empathy, the wish that others be free from suffering, as distinguished from loving kindness or metta, which is the wish that others be happy. Compassion is listed as the second of the four divine abidings, or Brahma-viharas, along with loving kindness, empathetic joy, and equanimity. 
Compassion is used for the cultivation of internal tranquility, of awareness, a skillful quality of the mind-heart. Compassion brings metta to blossom from within. So they work together and are parallel. And I I often feel that, um, which is partly the the relevance of this talk, that um, when loving kindness is taught, compassion absolutely needs to be taught along with it. So some of the synonyms for compassion are empathy, soft-heartedness, fellow-feeling, tenderness, and grace. The Buddha taught that all humans are alike in their desire for happiness and love. This is so whether or not we use unskillful or skillful means in an attempt to find balance, peace, and happiness. The confidence, strength, and personal authority to right ourselves when we encounter suffering and pain comes from a cultivated heart and mind, which trains us and prepares us to meet the suffering and pain we encounter in relation to ourselves and with other beings. Love asks you to let go. Compassion asks you to let go. Your capacity to be wholeheartedly present for anyone or anything in this world asks you to release your longing for how things used to be and your yearning for a better future. Letting go frees you to take your seat firmly in this moment and in the truth of loss and change. Letting go frees you of the burden of obsessing about what used to be and what might be in the future. Your willingness to let go of what you should be liberates you to embrace what is. This is one of the hardest lessons for us to learn and the lesson that none of us can avoid in this life. Most of us discover through reflection that the places we resist and cling to most tenaciously are also the places we suffer most acutely. They are the places we feel most imprisoned in a world governed by self and disconnected from others. Compassion is a release from that imprisonment and a healer of separation. Letting go does not leave you marooned in indifference or apathy. You are not asked to let go of your love or bonds of commitment and care. You are learning step by step, moment by moment, to let go of suffering and separation. Your capacity to find a boundless compassion is released by your capacity to let go. Christina Feldman. Compassion is a responsive movement of the heart. The heart quivers in response to suffering. And I I think that most of us have had that internal experience of the heart quivering. Compassion is a manifestation of loving friendliness in action. Compassion leads us to appropriate action and the appropriate Compassionate action is just the pure heart felt hope that the pain and suffering stops. 
A way to think of it is that compassion lies at the heart of what it means to be fully human. And it is what allows us to be at peace in the midst of pain and turmoil. It is an energetic response, not a mental idea. We often find ourselves given the opportunity to engage with the task of finding the humility and the courage to open oneself to our own or others' difficult and distressing circumstances and conditions. It is not easy. It takes intention, persistence, patience, and practice to move holding it as a core value and creating it as a being state. Whereas compassion is an empathetic response to suffering, loving kindness is the intention of goodwill. Use your voice for kindness, your ears for compassion, your hands for charity, your mind for truth, and your heart for love. Anonymous quote. The first step in developing compassion is being able to recognize, to open to, and to acknowledge that pain and suffering exists for everybody, everywhere, at some time or another. The first noble truth. You know, we hear that over and over and over when we're practitioners, but to just really sit and let that resonate, there is suffering. There is no getting away from it if you are embodied. However, through this practice and this way of understanding embodiment, there is the opportunity uh, to hold it with um, dignity, grace, um, and not allow or not have it be something that influences our state. So all these things that we've been practicing all week are the tools to really set the container for the awareness and the knowledge on the cellular level that there is suffering. Some suffering is intense and terrible, and some is quiet and small, but it is all suffering just the same. It is a thread that needs to be recognized clearly and grounds us in the awareness that we are all connected and moving along in our lives, living what it means to be human. Compassion is the antidote for anger and bitterness. If you keep compassion alive in your listening and understanding, then anger and bitterness cannot arise. Compassion alone can keep you from becoming irritated, angry, or full of despair. Compassion is born from happiness and also from understanding. When compassion and understanding are alive in your heart and mind, you are safe, whatever the circumstances or situation you are meeting. Denial, resistance, aversion, turning away from this fact and seeing with an obtuse mind 
only prolongs and aggravates the inevitable struggle that can arise when we do not see clearly things as they are. With the cultivation of the qualities that incline the heart towards compassion, the compassionate heart-mind builds the capacity to withstand the turmoil that is often the result of clinging, grasping, or any of the other visitors that can drop in when the mind becomes overwhelmed and clouded. A cultivated heart-mind increases our tolerance and willingness to meet challenges and difficulties and to truly know that this moment is like this, unaffected by the storms created by greed, aversion, and delusion, and when effected, as will happen, we are able to regain balance and to stabilize our hearts and minds with efficiency, efficacy, and ease. Most often, it sets in motion a trajectory to growth, forward movement, and healing, leading us closer and closer to freedom. When we feel broken, at our limit, when we hit bottom, there is an opening there where we get to see the possibility of living life in a different way. Trauma, trouble, difficulties, or struggles are transformative. It demands that we become creative at moving forward and to heal when we can, be awake to that, sometimes gentle nudge, and other times unmistakable push, and heed the opening. Keep your eye on the bandaged places. That's where the light enters. Rumi. Even more difficult than acknowledging pain is opening to it. It isn't easy. It takes courage and fortitude to establish an appropriate and rational relationship to pain and suffering. We may have to do it bit by bit, a little at a time, without forcing or being contrived. We also don't want to construct the illusion that we can somehow control the suffering. When we do not feel in control, often what shows up is righteous anger or indignation or fear or grief or pity. The near enemies of compassion. The near enemy of compassion is pity. It can appear to be similar <clears throat> or like compassion but there's a feeling of superiority to or in control of one's life and feeling that the other person's suffering is because they lack control or something of that nature. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. Cruelty is the enjoyment of other people's suffering. Even though it is clearly an opposite state from compassion, when we are lost in aversion, it becomes hard to detect. Cruelty is devoid of mercy. Compassion practice is an effective way to expose latent cruelty that may exist at an unconscious level. 
There is a radiance that dawns within when compassion takes over where cruelty has been. Anger and hatred, outrage, fear, and grief are all similar to compassion, but compassion they are not. They are varying states of aversion. Our sorrows and wounds are healed only when we touch them with compassion. The Buddha. When we have a bright, clear mind and can bring forward compassion as the trembling of the heart, it arises with the quality of equanimity. Equanimity is evenness of mind even under stress, calm, emotions when dealing with problems or pressures. I was going to talk about equanimity, but I had a lot to say about compassion, so I just wanted to throw that in. So you could check it out for yourself. <laughs> Imagine a mind where, is, where there is no bitter condemning judgment of oneself or of others. This mind does not see the world in terms of good and bad, right and wrong, good and evil. It sees only suffering and the end of suffering. What would happen if we looked at ourselves and all of the different things that we see and did not judge any of it, none of it? We would see that some things bring pain and others bring happiness, but there would be no denunciation, no guilt, no shame, and no fear. Compassion for ourselves is often neglected in spiritual practice. Human rights activists, social justice workers, educators, healthcare workers, mental health workers, POC, other gendered people, you can just plug in whatever fits for you. The ground for compassion is established first by practicing sensitivity towards ourselves. True compassion arises from a healthy sense of self, the absolute and the universal. Walk hand in hand, and and, just to remind you of that. It is never based on fear or pity, but it is a deep response of the heart based on dignity, integrity, and well-being of every single creature. It is a spontaneous response to the suffering and pain we encounter. It is our feeling of mutual resonance and natural connectedness in the face of the universal experience of loss and pain. As our own hearts open and are healed, it naturally seeks the healing of all it touches. Compassion for ourselves gives rise to the power to transform resentment into forgiveness, hatred into friendliness, and fear into respect for all beings. It allows us to extend warmth, sensitivity, and openness to the sorrows around us in a truthful and genuine way.
At times, compassion may give rise to action, and at times, it will not. This is when, you know, the practice, the the Vipassana practice and strengthening that faculty of discernment becomes so necessary. Because even though you may touch into uh, difficulty, suffering and trouble, it really is very wise to discern what the appropriate action is that's called for here or even whether action is necessary here. It does not arise in order to solve problems, yet out of compassion flows action whenever it need be taken. True compassion arises from a sense that the heart has the fearless capacity to embrace all things, to touch all things. Just prior to my coming here, um, I was in Vancouver, British Columbia, And um, there's another practice that I'm engaged with called Aboriginal Focusing Oriented Psychotherapy and Complex Trauma. And it was uh, not created, but it was brought forward by an indigenous woman um, in Canada and is basically based on indigenous philosophy and worldview. And Canada is uh, way ahead of us on the Indus of reconciliation with its native population and community. Um, And one of the things while I was there, so this program is funneled through the Justice Institute of British Columbia. And the whole institute was formed and created to ensure social justice engages with the police, the fire department, all the public service workers, in British Columbia have to go through the Justice Institute of British Columbia to be trained um, before they go out to work. And I was thinking about that because I know, you know, um, sitting in this compassionate heart and uh, and mind, I, I am very aware that that our police here in this country are suffering from PTSD. They are scared to death. And coming from that state creates the absolute perfect conditions that we get what we get in terms of the projection onto people who are brown and black and the fear and non-understanding that goes with that so that you are placed, we are placed in jeopardy just by walking out of the door. And although, you know, we have whatever our opinions are about gun control and all that kind of stuff, but all the stuff that's being talked about in the news and in our politics, are really just talking about the symptoms. It's not really going under and in to talk about the root, which inevitably, if we don't get to at some point, and I see that um, this community, not just us, but our other fellow yogi and sangha members throughout the country and throughout the world, this is a particular view, a particular lens that we can bring to the discussion about how to make things work and how to really engage, really engage with the the desire and the wish to have all beings be free from suffering. When you awaken your heart, You find to your surprise that your heart is empty. 
You find that you are looking into outer space. What are you? Who are you? Where is your heart? If you really look, you won't find anything tangible or solid. If you search for the weakened heart, if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for it, there is nothing there but tenderness. You feel sore and soft, and if sadness doesn't come from being mistreated, you feel tremendous sadness. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely open, exposed. It is the pure, raw heart. Even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. It is this tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the world. Shogam Trungpa. The power of the compassionate heart, of genuine compassion to transform the pain we encounter, is extraordinary. And it is this passionate heart that we are being called to cultivate and bring forward to meet the demand of the suffering in our world today. It is only this deep, clear, empty, meaning not full of story, reactivity, misperception, anger, greed, or aversion, that has the power and capacity that will meet the cries of the world. You get to define and choose that peace, that heart place and space that calls you to make a difference whether it be your own heart cultivation and your family, your community, your state, our country, the world. Where in there is the whisper? This is for you to do. This is where you become engaged. It is not always the loud clamoring of the suffering that demands our touch. Compassion is a verb, tik not han. The times are urgent. Let us slow down. A different urgency is called for in these moments, a broadening of the spectrum of action, a different kind of accountability, one which knows that love is not a bridge Love is a hyphen. Different questions are alive right now. What would a politics of many streams and not just the mainstream look like? What needs to shift in order for genuine intercultural and interspecies dialogue to happen? How can we forgive ourselves without diminishing our complicity and entanglement in oppressive systems? In what ways do schools perpetuate an accepted form of violence on some children and an exclusionary notion of education? What strategies could help strategies could help us assume postures of curiosity into the mysterious lives 
of humans and non-human others. What if this trauma of being inappropriate has something to tell us? What if we are stuck in a Cartesian iceberg and the quantum leap we can make is from asking how we change the world to how we are what the world is doing? What keeps stressing our lives and what if these irritants are allies we have not yet met? Bio Akumalafe. It is time for a sacred activism, for asking new questions, for slowing down, for applying the wisdom and clarity of a cultivated heart and mind. The fearlessness of compassion leads us directly into the conflict and suffering of life. Fearless compassion recognizes the inevitable suffering of life and our need to face the suffering in order to learn. Sometimes only the fire of suffering itself and the consequences of our actions can bring us deeper understanding to feel kindness for all beings and to liberation. Then there is the power of the fearless compassion, which can be as tough as it is kind. Sometimes compassion for ourselves and others requires us to set clear, great limits and boundaries. We must learn to say no and yet not put another out of our heart. There is no formula for the practice of compassion. It requires that we listen and attend, understand our motivations, and then move from there asking what action can really be the most helpful here. There is a certain flexibility needed to respond to changing circumstances, setting limits when necessary, and being flexible at the same time. Compassion allows life to pass through our hearts with its paradoxes of love, joy, and pain. When we hear the call of the compassionate heart, we give what we can to stop the war, to protect the children, to heal the environment, to transform prejudice and oppression, to care for the poor, and yet true compassion also loves ourselves, respects our own needs, honors our limits and our true capacity. When genuine compassion and wisdom come together, we honor, love, praise, and include ourselves and others. Instead of holding the ideal that we should be able to give endlessly with compassion for all beings, except me, we find compassion for all beings, including ourselves. Caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. Audrey Lord. The perception of separation between self and others transforms and drops away 
as we cultivate the habit of self-care as a wise way to spend our effort and as a doorway into connection. It is also an act of generosity to take the steps and measures to ensure we are well. Touching into suffering can help us nourish compassion within. If we are not in contact with pain, we cannot know what real happiness is. So touching suffering becomes a part of our practice. That is why we must take good care of ourselves. To know our limits is our practice. You have to enjoy meditation. You must drink your tea. You must mindfully breathe. You must visit with nature, the sky, the birds, the trees, the flowers, the children, whatever is refreshing, healing, and nourishing in us and around us. You must enjoy the company of happy people so that you get sufficient nourishment. Daily sitting, daily setting an intention for the cultivation of well-being through practice. The practice of nourishment is very important. We must remain balanced, and therefore, the daily practice of being in touch with elements that do not constantly express suffering is essential to the practice of compassion in action. We are able to come to this recognition through the understanding of this path and the application of clearly seeing and cultivating in courage and wisdom of the mind-heart. When genuine compassion arises, it moves through us as grace, bringing together a tenderness and fearlessness that could never come by other means. So just in closing, I'm going to read you a story. Uh, This was a collection from a book called The Giving Heart, which was written by Margot McLaughlin, who was one of our CDL4 sibs. So I'm going to read this to you because it's a good story. The Antelope, the Woodpecker, and the Turtle. And this story is from India. Once in the past, the Buddha-to-be was born as an antelope, Karungamiga. He lived in a thicket in the middle of the woods by a lake. At the top of a tree by that very same lake, there lived a woodpecker, Satapato, and in the lake there lived a turtle, Kachapo. The antelope, the woodpecker, and the turtle were friends. They lived together, and they took care of each other. How did they take care of each other? Well, they told each other stories. The woodpecker's stories were short and to the point. They went like this. 
The turtles' stories, on the other hand, were slow and ponderous. They went on and on and on until sometimes the woodpecker and the antelope fell asleep. The stories told by the antelope, on the other hand, spoke of things he had seen in the forest, creatures living their lives, teaching their young how to be in the world. Somehow, whenever the antelope told one of his stories, the woodpecker and the turtle felt a little kinder and a little wiser. One day, a hunter entered the forest. He happened to see the hoofprints of the antelope in the soft earth by the edge of the lake. When Karungamiga went to drink each night, the hunter laid a snare. It was made of leather, but it was strong as an iron chain. Then he went away. That night, when Karungamiga came to drink, his leg was caught in the snare. He cried out in fear. Down from the top of the tree flew Satapato, the woodpecker. Out from the water of the lake climbed Chacapacho, the turtle. They looked and saw their friend, the antelope, with his hind leg trapped in the snare, trembling and frightened. What can we do, said Gachapo, his wet shell gleaming in the moonlight. I know, said Satapato. You have a beak, Kachapo. Use your beak. Chew and cut this leather snare. I will fly through the woods to the hunter's lodge. I will slow the hunter and prevent him from coming at first light. Kachapo sat down and began to cut and chew the snare. Kadati, 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 kadati. As he chewed, Karungamiga, the antelope, murmured the turtle's name to encourage him. He said, Kachapo, Kachapo, Kachapo. Meanwhile, Satapato, the woodpecker, flew through the woods. The sound of his wings lifting and falling made a sound like the sound of his own name. Satapato, Satapato, Satapato. He flew through the forest right to the hunter's lodge. There he alighted in a tree and waited for any sound of the hunter preparing to set out. When light first showed in the east, he heard the hunter moving about. Inside the lodge, the hunter slung his leather pouch over one shoulder. He took his knife in one hand. Then he opened the door. At that very moment, Satapato cried out, flew down from the tree, flapped his wings, and struck the hunter in the face. The hunter was amazed. What is this black-winged bird of evil omen? He turned about, shut the door, and went back to bed. This was not a good way to start the day. The hunter said to himself, This bird of evil omen struck me in the face when I went through the front door. Now I'll go by the back door. But Satapato, waiting in the tree, thought to himself, This hunter came out by the front door. The second time, he'll go by the back door. <laughs> Satapato flew to the rear of the hunter's lodge. He alighted in a tree and waited. When the hunter opened the door and stepped out, Satapato flew down from the tree, flapped his wings, and struck the hunter in the face. The hunter was astonished. This bird does not want me to set out. He turned about 
and shut the door. Now he waited until the sun began to climb over the treetops into the sky. Then, thinking of what he might have caught in his leather snare, he took up his knife and his pouch, opened the door, and crouching low, he went quickly along the forest trails towards the lake. Satipato flew ahead of him to warn the antelope and the turtle. His wings went up and down even more quickly than before. Satipato, Satipato, Satipato! He flew through the woods to the edge of the lake, where Karungamiga, the antelope, was caught in the hunter's snare. The hunter is coming, the hunter is coming, warned the woodpecker. All night long the turtle had cut and chewed the snare. His beak was broken. There was blood at the edges of his mouth. He was weak and exhausted, but only one thin strand of the leather snare remained. The hunter is coming, warned Satipato. Karungamiga looked and saw the hunter coming with his knife. He snapped the leather snare and went running down the trail. The woodpecker flew up into a tree, and when the hunter arrived, there was no antelope in his snare. But there, at the edge of a lake, was a beautiful turtle with a beautiful turtle shell. He picked up Kachapo and put him in his leather pouch. As he ran down the trail, Karungamiga looked back. He saw that his friend Kachapo had been seized. He said to himself, I will save my friend. He came back a little ways on the trail. He pretended to stumble. He made sure that the hunter could see him. The hunter did see him. This little antelope is weak, he said. I will catch him easily. He unslung the leather pouch and set it on the ground. Then he set off after the antelope. Karungamiga led the hunter this way and that way on the forest trails, never letting him come too close, but never letting him stray too far behind. He led him right to the other side of the lake. Then he summoned all his strength and came leaping and jumping swift as the wind right back to the spot where Kachapo was trapped in the leather pouch. He crouched down low and caught the pouch on his two sharp-pointed horns. He lifted it up and let it fall. The pouch split open and out stepped Kachapo. Then down from the tree flew Satipato and alighted on the ground. Karungamiga spoke to the turtle and the woodpecker. My friends, he said, Kachapo, Satipato, you have done for me what ought to be done by a friend. You have given me my life. Now, quickly, before the hunter returns, Satipato, take your young ones and fly through the woods to safety, and you, Kachapo, hide yourself in the waters of the lake, where the hunter will not see you, and I will run and hide in the thicket. They each went their separate ways, and when the hunter came back, he found only a broken snare and a torn pouch. He looked closely and saw the hoofprints of the antelope, drops of blood from the turtle's beak, and one black-winged feather. There, on the forest floor, he read the story of their friendship. This feather, could it be from the bird that struck me in the face this very morning? he asked himself. And this snare, see how it has been cut and chewed? 
Could it be that the turtle used his sharp beak to cut the snare and release the antelope? And these hoofprints returning, did the antelope come back to rescue the turtle? He was amazed, and shaking his head in disbelief, he gathered up the torn pouch and the broken snare. He set off, disappointed and discouraged, but hoping the next time he might catch some critters who didn't have such good friends. Thank you for your listening. Let's sit for a moment. May the efforts of our practice benefit all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.